Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And welcome to the fourth part of our episodes about cults. Before we get into all that good cultishness, however, what is going on? Well, Paul, I hear things are rising from the deep. Can you give us a hint about what's about to happen on Drive Through RPG? Yeah, so I've got a new scenario that I'm publishing on Chaosium's Miskatonic Repository, which is their storefront on Drive Through RPG for all the fan-made material. Yeah, I've got a scenario called Full Fathom 5 that I'm publishing through that, which has been edited by uh, Mr. Scott Dorwood and laid out by our very own Mr. Matt Sanderson. So thank you very much, guys, for all your help. I've, I've also got a cover from uh, John Sumro, who, if you're a, a backer and you've received our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome, you may recognise that name as uh, a great artist. I'm really pleased with the cover. It was great working with John on that. And he's done some internal artwork for it as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got three black and white pieces inside there, which uh, he just brings the ideas to life. It's great. Yeah. He's really good. And I'll give a shout out to John. He's got his own uh, Patreon as well, so you can find him. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to his Patreon as well. And also Lucy's done all the character portraits, hasn't she? Yep. So it's all very much uh, in-house because <laughs> there's quite a cast of character portraits. Everybody on on board, on board the Barclay, uh, the whaling ship, has uh, all 23 of them have got a character portrait, custom character sheets. And uh, yeah, I think I'm yeah very pleased with it. Yeah, I think it's come out very nicely. And on Scott's front, I hear you're reaching a climax with uh, something on how we roll. <laughs> that, that sounds much smuttier than it should. Down straight. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, for those who've been following what's going on on how we roll, you know that some time back, actually quite a long time back in terms of recording, we started doing an all-star cast version of the intro that I wrote for the new edition of Masks of Neolithodeb. And Joe has been putting that out in between regular releases for a while now. Around the time this goes out, or maybe a little after, we should be getting to the last episodes. I believe it's going to be about 16 episodes by the time it's done. I mean, obviously I'm a bit biased, but... I think it came out very nicely. We had a fantastic cast. We had Veronica from Cthulhu and Friends. We had Seth Skorkowski from his YouTube channel. You, you know Seth. We had Keeper Murph from the Miskatonic University. And we had Owen and Joe from How We Roll. So an all-round good cast. So do listen to that if you haven't already, and I, I think you'll like it. And one more thing. We've still got our lockdown specials continuing they uh, go out in between the regular episodes and they go out to all our patreon backers these are special episodes that we do focusing on media that we've consumed so they alternate between films books and tv always with an eye as to what we can steal for our games which is usually quite a lot and now on to our main topic cults and how they recruit people for the past few episodes, we've been talking about different aspects of cults, trying to pin down what a cult is, what kinds of people get involved with them, both in the leadership and the membership, what kinds of things a cult might believe in, how they form. But now we're going to get into how they draw new people in. 
And also think about how, in terms of Call of Cthulhu, people in the real world, well, no, it's not the real world, is it? People in the game world might get drawn into a Cthulhu cult. Do they knowingly go into sign up to being a cultist of Cthulhu? Or is it by some underhand method and they're deceived into it? So, I mean, do cults have like an HR department and they're, you know, sending your CV and uh, we'll judge whether you're worthy to join us or not? <laughs> or is it kind of different to that? I think it's a little different, right? I can still see me, me getting a rejection letter, even from the Cthulhu cult saying, yeah, sorry, you just you just aren't enough psycho. You aren't crazy enough oh. for us. Uh, please, please try a different god. We, we we recommend Haster or... I can't, I can't believe that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> what you just said, Matt, of the three of us, right, because I can see you on the camera, you're the only one wearing a robe. <laughs> you're giving away the secrets of recording during lockdown now. Come on, man. <laughs> my blood red robe and my sweat box here, yeah. <laughs> Out of the three of us, I'm probably the only one who owns a robe that he's worn inside a stone circle uh, during a magical ritual. Yeah, I can get half of that statement, but I can't get the other half. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a hooded robe. Actually, I do have a hooded robe. I've got a couple, I think. My one doesn't have a hood on it. Well, what are you doing? Oh, because you, you've got the Gandalf hat. <laughs> it gets in the way. Yeah. Uh, I was going to think, yeah. a, a count, I think I've got three ro hooded robes somewhere in the house. There you go. <laughs> this is stacking up, Matt. This is stacking, <laughs> the evidence is stacking up against you. You tell us you're not. First it was LARP and then it ended up being a cultist. Oh, well. Yeah. One thing leads to another. <laughs> You'll be a furry before you know it. Yeah, I, I often think that it's remarkable that I got through my 20s without becoming involved in the cult, because I imagine at the time I was kind of a prime candidate for that kind of thing. I mean, we'll go through some of the checklists of the kinds of people the cults recruit, but I think, yeah, I, I ticked about every box there was. While I'd never actually joined an organisation... My early days of getting involved with people who were interested in the cult stuff made me realise in retrospect how easy it is to fall into all that stuff. I mean, you know, th this, this isn't a cult, so I'll, I'll preface it by that, but I can see a lot of parallels. There was a friend I made through work, a woman called Maggie, who was a witch, a Wiccan, and you know, all of her friends were, were Wiccan. She had her own coven, and she had um, you know, lots of interests outside there in various occult things, as did you know, her circle of friends. And, you know, it was something that interested me. And I sort of, even though, you know, I never bought into the religion of Wicca, I have plenty of respect for it. Don't take this as denigration in any way, but it just wasn't for me. But, yeah, going along and spending weekends and evenings chatting with all these people who had very unorthodox beliefs and quite often you know sort of strange ideas about the way the world worked and magical effects and you know the the secrets behind reality every now and then i you know i'd, I'd spend a bit of time away from them and sort of take stock of how 
a lot of these ideas had seeped into my way of thinking and I was just, you know, during these conversations, just sort of nodding along and accepting them. And every now and then I'd catch myself repeating them to other people and then thinking, well, actually, no, I don't believe this. Why am I saying this? Now that I you know, sort of think about all that in retrospect and I'm thinking about how people get involved in cults, I can just sort of see that process, that slow process of sort of absorbing the beliefs of the people around you through osmosis and just internalising it all without, you know, just as a purely social process, without applying any kind of filter or um, critical thinking to the whole thing. It's just so easy. Yeah, no, I think totally that people tend to believe, they tend to fall in line and believe what the consensus is. And I think... Mm. We've, we've seen that very recently with the coronavirus lockdown, that people adapt to whatever the situation is. They, on the whole, mm. they adapt to it very quickly. And it was, it was remarkable to me how quickly the, the very different way of living became the normal way of living. And I found, yeah. it, I found, it, very, or I found it inconceivable that we would lock down like Italy did, or, or even you know, similar to the way, way they did before. But then once we'd, we were deep in it, it seemed inconceivable to me that the lockdown would, would end. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, you know, and like we live in a capitalist society, it's kind of, I mean, I know there are other things, but it's hard for me to conceive of living in a communist society or, you know, something radically different. I can't, I can't really get my head around that. And I think everybody's just, con you just, you just get conditioned to the, what's around you, I think. Well, it's not just that you can't conceive of it, but I think that there is a sense almost of panic or fear that um, if there were a great political revolution, if our, if the entire political structure of our country changed in short order or changed to something else, that I think would seem terrifying to the vast majority of people just because it's something so different. Uh, like mm. you say, uh, it, it, we, we might completely adapt to whatever the new order is afterwards, but it's that idea of catastrophic change, of having to adjust to a new reality that, you know, if you anticipate it, if you think about it, I think is is terrifying. And, you know, I, I think it's something we'll come back to when we talk about how cults re retain people. You know, this, the, you know, once you're, you've absorbed this, this philosophy, this way of living, the idea of breaking out of it becomes inconceivable. So should we talk about how cults actually recruit people, how they get yes. them in through the doors? So, you know, so to speak, and what makes people stay? What makes people turn up and what makes people stay? Well, the, the big one that I mentioned previously is I've done some research on the on the People's Temple. And it seems quite obvious how their recruitment drive worked. They started off effectively as a church. It was building a congregation. Mm. It's, I mean, it started off around Jim Jones being a very charismatic preacher and his sermons were bringing in a lot of people off the street. And the big thing that was part of his divisiveness in the, uh, the mundane church community was that he was very accepting and very much promoting the idea of um, integration of uh, various racial communities into the um, into the congregation, particularly the black community. Uh, well, this in Indiana at the time in the uh, in the fifties that really rubbed uh, the more senior members of the congregation up the wrong way. Um, they essentially issued him an ultimatum that said either you stop 
doing this and change your sermon or you get out. Well, he opted for the latter um, and then promptly went door to door selling monkeys to raise funds to get his uh, to get his church off the ground. <laughs> selling monkeys. Yeah, seriously, he went he went door to door in Indianapolis selling monkeys, and there was very. Uh, I've watched one documentary of it uh, on um, on YouTube or Amazon Prime, I think it was actually, um, that was kind of cataloging or going through his timeline leading up to Jonestown, and there was instances of where he would turn up on to offer a monkey at the doorstep, and that would be another member to his congregation that they he would use it to invite them invite <laughs> them to the church, and then yeah, hallelujah, brother, you're part of the flock. Not so much Joe Exotic as Jim Exotic. <laughs> yeah, be- beware the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, yeah, people are often enticed into cults through methods other than giving them monkeys. Obviously, yeah, nothing will trump giving them a monkey, but yeah, they, they, there are other methods. But, I, I mean, let's start off by thinking what kind of person joins a cult, or you know, particularly what kind of person is targeted perhaps for recruitment, but what kind of person is going to be most susceptible? I think it depends on the doctrine or the philosophy that the cult is um, espoused. Um, uh, Vocalising will be determines what kind of audience they're trying, or what kind of target audience they're trying to draw in. Mm. I'd agree with that, but I think that once you cut past those, there are some commonalities to the kinds of people who tend to join cults. And um, I, I've read a couple of articles by psychologists where they were talking about you know, the people who are uh, most likely to, to join. The common things were that you know, it was people who were emotionally vulnerable. So people who are undergoing high amounts of stress, who are in uh, turbulent personal situations. So, you know, maybe they're going through a divorce or maybe they're, you know, in financial hardship. Maybe they're socially isolated. You know, maybe they've been bereaved recently or lost their job. But, you know, that moment of, of uncertainty of crisis in their life tends to make them vulnerable to someone coming along and offering them security and answers and clarity. Yeah. Well, one one interesting thing though that that took me by surprise is that um, apparently there isn't really much of a higher incidence of mental illness amongst cult members than there is in you know people outside. I you know there, there may be people who who develop anxiety or depression or PTSD or whatever as a result of their experiences within the cult, but the people who are more likely to join a cult aren't necessarily going to be mentally ill any more often than you know the, the population at large. I mean, it very much seems to me that the the people who join are looking for something in their lives, and they're either looking for some sort of um, religious truth, spiritual truth, you know, as as many of us mm. have done, you know, to look for some sort of deeper meaning in life, and also in a sort of secular way, just to find a, a place where you belong. I think you know, many of us feel like you know or don't feel part of my family anymore or i don't feel like i've got many friends i don't really feel accepted but then you find this place where people accept you and where you're they seem to be like you and there's a father figure or a mother figure you know kind of leading the cult and it you know i think it commonly kind of replaces your family or, or perhaps 
you know, gives you a family and gives you a place where you can feel like you belong. I say one documentary I um, I watched referred to them as seekers that they were people who were seeking something beyond this life, something more spiritually fulfilling and looking for answers to the big questions. And these cult leaders were advocating that they could be the ones that could provide them with answers if they stuck mm. with them. Yeah, and th- this is why I made that comment earlier about how I'm stunned that I got through my 20s without joining a cult, because I, I spent my 20s pretty much as a seeker. You know, I was looking for, I, after I lost my faith as a Christian, I was looking for something to replace that. I was looking for some, not, not necessarily answers, but some structure, some way that I could try to discover more about myself about what i considered to be the the mysteries of the universe yeah the the true nature of reality this is exactly the kind of thing that a a cult leader will offer you these answers this certainty that if you're a particular kind of person someone who is you know perhaps you know even a bit gullible but you know is looking for some certainty some structure you know is disillusioned with the the world around them is perhaps idealistic you know you are ripe fodder yeah i think that word it's unfortunate but i think that word gullible i don't know Mm. perhaps that is that is is something in there i don't want to be unsympathetic to the people who get taken in by these things but i kind of feel like well i i certainly think there's there's probably quite a low hit rate for these things for these cults you know when we look at worldwide religions the large established proper proper religions if you like want to use that term they take in people who generation after generation it's tradition whereas cults tend to be something fairly new and it's a new thing you're joining you're not joining it because your your mum and your dad and your grandfather and your grandmother were in it it's something new so I, I kind of figure they have probably have a pretty low hit rate you know that probably loads of people become aware of them but probably you know that we've already talked about that filtering thing but just self-filtering i mean you probably had the opportunity to have been drawn into numerous cults in your 20s scott but you're probably you know critically minded enough and not gullible enough that you that you didn't allow yourself to be drawn into that you know I, yeah. I've, I've kind of had that experience myself and you know when when these teachings sort of when i'm been confronted with these teachings i've always thought well that's kind of interesting but i don't really know if i believe it yeah you know, yes i don't believe that in my heart and i look around at the other people that i'm with and they're like yeah totally get it and i'm thinking is there something wrong with me because i'm not really buying it. it doesn't doesn't stop me being with that society for years and then paying a you know a lot of interest in it but it always just seems to be that barrier for me. But I think, yeah, that that whole idea of drawing you in by increments is important. I don't think many cults will sort of come out and say, yeah, well, the secret is that the universe was shat out by a giant serpent and we're all just, you know, maggots wriggling around in its dung or whatever. Mm. Yeah, oh, sure. that, 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 you know, if you, if you start out with this, you know, you know, huge bizarre idea then that's going to be off-putting but you know if you start off by creating that sense of community and pulling people in and creating the personal bonds and so on and then slowly reveal the dogma by degrees then that is much more effective and you know by the time you are accepting your role as an eater of serpent dung then pff, yeah you know, yeah. you know it's, it all seems natural it all depends on what herbs and spices you throw over it 
Mm. Yeah, it's got to be properly prepared. Yeah, so um, I was looking into uh, Buddhafield. This is a, a cult in the mid-80s that started in the mid-80s, led by a charismatic leader. Uh, and it, whilst it starts in 1985, I think, it seems kind of quite hippie-ish, quite... 60s early 70s but then the mid 80s are only about 10 years after that so and it interviewed uh, a number of um, members uh, or ex-members and you know the, the the guy that made the film he came out as gay to his mother who was very traditional kind of catholic family and he was sort of rejected for by his mother and, and the family and he ended up going and looking for something else. And, and when he came across this uh, group that was very accepting to him, um, he felt embraced by it. And it was still a kind of a Christian, although it uses the name Buddha field, it's still a ostensibly Christian group, although it draws on uh, Eastern teachings as well. And other people, <laughs> other members quoted um, such things as searching for meaning. Um, one guy said he got a problem with authority, uh, searching for enlightenment or that something was missing from their life. So there's always, it seems like there's something that's, it's almost like there's a bit missing, you know, whether that's through, they've been damaged through, uh, you know, drugs or abuse, or that, you know, they're looking to fill that hole with something, um, or that, you know, they've, they've just got a problem with society and they want to find a different way of living. So most people, and I think you, Matt, you know, you, you said you, you kind of, you've got your job, you're at home, you're not really looking for that. So I don't think you'd get drawn in. Simply don't have the time for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's also the fact that, you know, you don't have that feeling that somehow your life is in crisis or missing something important. And, you know, that, that's the thing. You, you need a void for that cult to fill. Yeah, no, I really, I really don't think such things are missing. Uh, someone joked a little while back about, um, oh, he's in a completely different context, admittedly. It's like, uh, oh, you could go to work to have the money to have a social life. And so I, I kind of retorted back by saying, I solved the problem of not having any money by not having a social life. It works quite well for me. But <laughs> you go to work to fill your bookcase, Matt. Precisely that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm not talking about time though i'm talking about you know that that feeling that a great many people have that there is something missing in their life you know whether that is religion whether that is you know some kind of philosophical purpose um whether it's loneliness whether you know it, it's it's some kind of need or want for for status or you know material wealth but yeah you know, that feeling that there is something in you that needs to be needs needs to be filled needs to be fed mm. now nah, the, the only thing i think that would come close to that for me is that i know there's a couple of deadlands books i'm still looking for or call of, <laughs> uh, old call of cthulhu books i have holes in my rpg collections or my series of novels that i collect uh, or dvds that is it so basically, if someone were to set up a cult uh, which revolved around limited edition books in really nice bindings, and in order to advance to the next level, you know, you had to make donations and then you'd get the next book in the series that was flesh out your collection, then you'd be in. 
there's a reason why it says that if uh, in Unknown Armies, if you put uh, adepts of different schools in a car together, they'll be fine. But you put uh, a group of bibliomancers together in the same room, and it'll be fucking murder in five minutes. <laughs> no way would I get involved with a group that wanted to get anywhere near my books like that. <laughs> just, just coming back to what you were saying a minute ago, Scott. I mean, thinking about gaming and, and the motivations of non-player characters and how they might get involved in cults. It seemed like what you were saying in a, in a kind of a nutshell is summed up by that whole, you know, hippie concept of going to India on a search for yourself, you know, yeah. just going somewhere to look for, you know, meaning, going on the quest for truth. And that's fulfilled by people in, in many different ways. But, you know, it seemed, that seems to be the, the stereotype to me of, you know, finding yourself, whatever that means. I guess there are people out there who are secure enough in who they consider themselves to be uh that you know they they never feel that need or or perhaps who just aren't given over to self-reflection they just don't have that curiosity yeah and you know th these people will never join cults but yeah I, I, yeah i don't know what it is that that makes some people like that and some people into seekers i mean it may, it may be neurological it may be down to upbringing but whatever it is yeah it, it seems to be a very stark difference between different categories of people i mean one other observation they made in the uh documentary about the buddha field was that the members uh, it needed two things it needed a a, a charismatic narcissist um at the heart of it mm. as a leader and it needed codependent uh members yes yeah i um, think that's that sums up the dynamic succinctly a definition of codependency codependency is a behavioral condition in a relationship where one person enables another person's addiction poor mental health immaturity irresponsibility or underachievement among the core characteristics of codependency is an excessive reliance on other people for approval and a sense of identity so yeah so basically it means like somebody who's very um so somebody who enables another person's addiction or, or sort of problems and lets that ride and sort of almost encourages it or enables it at least um but also that they're very reliant on other people's approval for their sense of identity so you know a typical if you're a leader that's just the sort of person you want in your cult if if you like and that's just the kind of person that would stay you know they're they're quite they've got to be quite malleable i think um you know they're told one thing and even if they're told something totally different the next week they've kind of got to stick with it the thing is i think that that is probably present to some degree in most people that people are fundamentally social animals and that we build up our sense of self and our Sense, a set of beliefs and understandings about the way the world works very much from the context of other people in society at large and i mean it may take a particular kind of person to be drawn into a cult lifestyle but i think I, I don't know, I, I, I may be horribly wrong here, but I think that if you dumped most people into that setting, you know, through whatever reason, you know, maybe it's the Patty Hearst approach of them being kidnapped or, you know, wh whatever, but if, if, some, if a, a person who wasn't a seeker ended up in that environment, 
that they probably still pick up a lot of the conditioning. Maybe. Just because that's how people work. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, but, I mean, it was interesting hearing you talking about codependency because you know, one thing that I picked up on when I was reading around was on the FAQ of a website called Cult Concern. Um, mm. Just they made a, a throwaway comment at some stage about how membership in a cult was very much like drug addiction uh, in that yeah. it has similar kind of highs, lows, and, as they actually said, dependency issues. You know, it's hard to break away from the whole thing. It it affects every aspect of your life. It creates your circle of friends. You know, it, it just comes to dominate your thinking. It provides you with the answers you need. So, yeah, I think looking at, at cult membership as an addiction is is perhaps quite useful. There are certainly numerous examples of where in fact, drugs have been used as a method to um, help re- um, retain control over cult members. But anyway, as we touched upon, cults do tend to recruit vulnerable people. I mean, this isn't obviously a universal statement, but more often than not, the people who are drawn in are people at some point of questioning or crisis in their life, who are seeking answers or community, who have some need to be filled. And as a result, there are a number of very ripe harvesting grounds that various cults use. And I think one of the biggest ones is universities and places of higher education, because I, I don't know about you two, but certainly for me, I mean, that was quite a vulnerable point in my life. I think, you know, that first time when you're sort of operating outside home or operating outside your family, creating brand new circles of friends, dealing with, you know, the very different rigors of tertiary education, and generally going through a time in your life when you're, I, I think, probably asking a lot of questions and trying to find yourself. I and this, this, I would have thought, would be a time when if someone comes along and sort of says, oh, you know, I have some answers or I have things that I can teach you that will make all this make sense. It would sound really appealing. In my own experience, that just seems to be completely at the wrong end of the scale. For me, it was, right, I'm in uni. How can the next two and a bit years get the fuck out of my way as quick as possible and I get on to real life? <laughs> but you weren't residential at university, yeah. were you? You commuted from your parents' No, I was place. there during the week. It was only I went home at weekends. Oh, okay, right. If I'd stayed any longer, cabin fever would have set in, so... Yeah, I made very few connections in terms in terms maybe a handful of friends while I was at uni. But I don't think I've really kept in touch with any of them yeah. since then. And no, I was very much of the opinion I want my degree and I want to get the fuck out of here. That was that was my sole intent. And I mean I'd say that when I was at university I mean I kinda of get what you're saying, Scott. I don't know that I was aware of any I mean, to use the term cult seems a bit weird, but you know, cults recruiting people. I don't remember I mean, I can see how they would be potentially a bit more open than than other people. I don't, I don't really know if that's the case. It seems to me like people come into these cults through other means, so it's something that they're interested in. So perhaps they're, you know, they they are interested in a what we would call a mainstream religion, but then you know something draws them away from that into a smaller group of that religion and then there's a cult that kind of siphons people off from that so it's i'm religious oh you're religious too you know and it's easy to draw somebody in through that so it's sort of 
getting a foothold in something they already believe in or you know that they're interested in i don't know alternative medicine or they're all they're interested in eastern mysticism that you might call it or they've already got a kind of a seed of an interest in that thing and you're kind of looking into that thing well it doesn't even have to be a religious thing uh, i talked in an earlier episode about my mother's brief involvement with the cult uh which was the school of philosophy which i uh, it's interesting i was talking to one of our listeners on discord a little while back when i was preparing for these episodes a chap in, in new zealand and he said that yeah the, the school of philosophy is still very much going out in new zealand is still acted there and is still behaving in exactly the same way so just briefly to recap i won't go into the whole thing but this is an organization that basically advertises itself as providing courses in philosophy and so you go along and it is exactly that i mean they teach western philosophy i seem to remember their textbook is actually bertrand russell's book on the history of western philosophy from there they basically use that as a filter so the people who seem to be particularly interested or keen then get invited to retreats you know this is what happened to my mother you know come along to this house in the country for a weekend and we'll teach you more and slowly the more esoteric elements are, are dripped in and they start trying to get you involved more in communal activities i seem to remember my mother saying stuff like maintaining the garden in this house and stuff like that oh yeah yeah, it was a lot of, you know, very classic cultish stuff of doing things that were physically tiring, perhaps making sure that you didn't quite get enough to eat or drink, having long hours, basically lowering your defences and using this as a, you know, an opportunity to slowly introduce the, the weirder and more controlling aspects of their beliefs. Ultimately, those things seem about exploitation, don't they? A lot of these cults, mm. when you strip away the philosophical or pseudo kind of, or religious, elements they're about exploiting people and exercising you know oh, yeah. glorifying the the leader kind of glorifying themselves and exploiting the, the people below them well i guess that's the different thing in call of cthulhu where we're saying okay well in call of cthulhu this entity that is being worshipped or facilitated in some way is a real thing you know Though I'm not sure in Call of Cthulhu it always has to be. Sure. As we discussed a bit last episode, I mean, just because you've been touched by the dreams of Cthulhu and decided that you're going to worship an idol of him doesn't necessarily mean you actually have a connection to him or will ever actually encounter him personally. But the default setting in the game, I would sort of think, is that Cthulhu is real. Hmm. I mean, you could play a game where it's not. I mean, there have been Cthulhu scenarios where, you know, all that stuff is fictional, yeah. is, you know, <laughs> is, is not real in the game either. Yes, it's fictional within the fiction. Yeah, <laughs> it gets very uh, difficult to uh, to talk. I mean, I, I would I would like to talk here, if I may, about my one one of my experiences of mm. what I would class as a cult, which was, and I'm pretty confident they're defunct now. So I think we can talk about them, the Jesus Army. I don't know if they're defunct. I thought they were still going. But on the other hand, I don't think it's particularly controversial to call them a cult. They've certainly been written about in any number of books on cults, including Spying in Goroland, which I recommended in the first episode. I remember references to this group because they were, you know, within about 20 miles of where I grew up, within about 20 miles of Buckingham. They were based at a you know big old house there. And I remember as a young kid, I mean, like a young teenager, I guess, my dad talking about this group of people who lived out, you know, Northampton Way, 
far off lands. <laughs> we, it was a farming community, so it's a bit like Hobbiton. Up in Northampton where the hills rise wild. <laughs> yes. I was just going to say that most of the maps of Northampton I've seen have got Here Be Dragons written on them, and that's Indeed. only two miles away from where I am now. Yeah. You want to watch out, Matt. But- I do, every day. We can't stop here. This is Alan Moore country. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when the thing my dad was um, aware of was that these people had given up their worldly possessions, given up their money and, and, and everything to join this group. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But the perception was that all the money had gone to like the, the leaders of the group and they were really rich. And the, the people at the bottom had, that had given up all their stuff, you know, were living very basic lives at this commune. So that was the reputation this place had got. And I didn't really know any more about it and uh, didn't really give it a lot of thought. And then myself and my friend Mark, we were um, doing Art Foundation course. We were like 18, 19 in Northampton. I used to hitchhike around the country a lot. We decided, got a friend up at Liverpool, which is like 150 miles away. And we decided, okay, well, we've got an invite to the party. Uh, let's hitch up. So we had, we actually went to college all day. And then went out at like, I don't know, like four o'clock in the afternoon to hitchhike to Liverpool, 150 miles away for a party, which was probably a bit nuts because, <laughs> you know, it's quite a long way. That's what being young's all about, Paul. Yeah. Well, it was actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't joking. So we stuck out our thumbs and we walk. Yeah, no. And we're walking sort of out of Northampton so that we can get to like the ring road where the, you know, there's going to be more traffic to sort of pick us up. I can remember walking along with our backs to the traffic and this van pulls over. Now, you, you kind of get this feel for things that pull over. It's usually a car with one driver or it's maybe a truck or something like that. But this was like a minibus, like a small van with windows at the back. And as we approached it, you could see there was three people in the front seats with the drive, you know, the driver's end, but rows of seats down either side of the back of the van with guys sat in the back facing each other. So to me, it looked like a workman's van, like a, a troop of workmen had come from a site and were going somewhere. And I was like, this feels weird because that you don't usually get a lift with those kind of people. Mm. Um, that, that seems very uncharacteristic. But, you know... You have to kind of be open to all sorts when you're hitchhiking. So we opened up the door and they were like really friendly. Oh, come in, come in. They were really friendly. And we got in and we got chatting to them. And it quickly became evident that they were members of the Jesus Army. Uh, And we told them what we were doing and they were very receptive and friendly. Uh, And so next thing we know, me and Mark, we're back at the commune having dinner. I don't really remember much. And this is like 30 years ago. I don't remember too much more about that. But I do remember then uh, they dropped us off at Junction 18 of the M1 an hour or two later. And it's all dark by then, which is great. And uh, <laughs> this is this is kind of a side topic here. But I'm going to throw it in just a little bit of colour. <laughs> uh, pl- We're hitchhiking in the dark at the st- on the, the motorway junction and the police pull over. And just to sort of, paint the picture we've both got like really long hair and i've and it's must be wintry because i've got this long kind of sheepskin woolly sheepskin jacket on um big thing that i bought in a secondhand store in 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 uh, northampton with all these curious pockets under the armpit and so on and um yeah the police were like okay we're gonna search you okay so <laughs> they search us and mark is just really paranoid he came out with the classic phrase when they asked him if he smoked roll-ups he said no i don't ha- i lack the manual dexterity for such things <laughs> <laughs> we never forgot 
<laughs> that phrase is indelibly written in my mind as he said that to the policeman oh. now. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, we had nothing illicit on our persons. <laughs> what, what you talk about there is is sort of their shtick. I remember the first time I encountered them was hearing stories of how they'd recruit in London. They had this special double-decker bus which they painted up in garish colours with their sort of logo and all sorts of slogans. And they'd go down to London, and if I remember correctly, they basically used to feed homeless people and uh, people in in need of a meal out of the bus and use this as a way to strike up conversations. And then anyone who was interested, they'd pilot them in the bus and drive them up to Northampton afterwards. This whole sort of inducement of food, what you were talking about there, we'll feed you if you listen to us, seems to be quite a common recruiting technique in general, but yeah, certainly very much on brand for the Jesus Army. I mean, I would say everybody that we talked to, I can remember Mark commenting on this at the time, my friend, that pretty much everyone we spoke to, they'd got a hard luck story. You know, they'd, they'd had a hard time and that's what brought them into this group you know they'd had a hard time being abused or broken sort of family background or an overdose on drugs or you know they'd 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 had uh critical times in their life and they'd needed support and this is where they found it you know also that documentary about the buddha field the, the guy that made that film um he he joined that group soon after uh, coming out as gay to his family and being rejected by them, you know, and he's he's looking for somewhere to be to find acceptance. And I think you know we all are, but you know if you don't have anything else, and this group offers you that, and they listen to you and they make allow you to become part of their group, that's a big deal. Yeah, and that certainly ties in with the whole idea we were talking about before of cults recruiting people at vulnerable points in their life. When I was looking into the kinds of places that cults recruit, it was, you know, university campuses, but also, uh, you know, self-help and support groups. Uh, the, apparently, you know, some recruit at the unemployment office. So people, you know, in need of jobs or people, you know, who've, who've fallen out mm. of work, they're at a vulnerable position in their life. You know, perhaps they can be recruited then. I mean, there are certainly yeah. cults that, that use things like that as as fronts like the school of philosophy but in more sinister ways to draw people in there's one group i won't mention by name but they have bought up or rather established brands as both a support group for people with drug problems and use that as a recruiting tool and also they even bought up an anti-cult group and use that as uh, a way of, of recruiting by sort of saying all the other religions are cults, but this this one is okay. Look out for con men. <laughs> a safer one to mention these days because they've been all over the news and I don't think anyone would deny that they're a cult now is Nexium. So Nexium started out, well, supposedly as a self-help group. I, the guy who founded it, who <laughs> I've heard multiple pronunciations of his name so i'll I'll 
probably get it horribly wrong, but Keith Raniero, Ranieri had apparently run uh, multi-level marketing schemes before and had been given police warnings for them in the 1990s. But then you know, sort of established this, this organization of self-help groups to try to, in the form of seminars, particularly aimed at women, and basically use this as a way of recruiting vulnerable women. And he set up a, a sort of cult within the cult, or at least an inner order, which was known as DOS, which once you were brought into that, you were sort of in the inner circle, but then you were sort of groomed pretty much as a sex slave, uh, so much so that, um, and these were generally other women that he was involved with who'd, who'd bring these women in and groom them for him. In some cases, the, the women, well, the girls that they recruited were underage. Not only did he take sexual advantage of them, but, you know, in some cases they were imprisoned involuntarily for a couple of years, locked in mm. a cell, effectively. And in some cases, apparently he'd mark them as his property by branding them with his initials. But the whole point is that you know the, it it presented to the world as a self help group there to help women primarily. As far as what we're talking about with sinister cults, I mean that that is like the worst of the worst in my opinion. In that you know it presented itself as the opposite of what it was. It found people who were at vulnerable points of their life and slowly brought them in, tricked them, and then just did horrible things to them. I think that's a good example because. Like you say, it's is clearly not what it sets out to be. It's not, you know, as a group yeah. for, for helping women in trouble. So that's kind of transparently wrong. It's a criminal organization exploiting people. But is that actually any different to a lot of these other cults? You know, these these ones that use like a religious front or whatever. Because I guess religion is so sort of intangible, we could sort of say, Oh, well, they are a bit religious. Well, no, they're not really. They're they're using this as a tool to exploit people. It seems to me a lot of them, you know, if we look at the extreme cases like Charles Manson and so on, um, you know, they take on some semblance of religious appearance, but they're not, mm. not really, are they? Or at least the religious aspects are secondary. It's as much a con, really, as the, you know, that, that group you just talked about looking after women. Mm. If anything, it's that they they use religion very much the same way that Nexium would use the self-help program, mm. that it's, that is the hook with the bait on it that reels them in, that it's the initial yeah. common ground that they have. Yeah. But then after that, it turns into something very, very different. Yeah, I'm not aware of Nexium, I have to say. I didn't know it. Oh, yeah, it came up in a cult documentary I watched a little while ago. Right. Oh, they were the first example of a cult in the programme. Right. They were all over the news. You, you might have seen reference to them without piecing that together because the way their name is written down is, is weird. It's written all in caps and it's written down as N-X-I-V-M. So it's not obvious oh, okay. when you first see it how to pronounce it, but it's, right. it's known as Nexium. I think from a religious point of view, an interesting parallel uh, to Nexium is the Children of God, which in a lot of ways is quite a similar organization. I mean, they're now called the Family International and they're still around, but they were founded by this guy called David Berg, who seemed to be quite similar to Keith uh, Ranieri in that you know, he, he primarily seemed to be using this as a way to 
you know, have sex with lots of women and wasn't particularly worried about whether or not they were uh, you know, of the age of consent. It was couched much more in, in religious terms. So we, we discussed them in an earlier episode briefly because you, you were talking about um, Louis Through talking to Rose McGowan hmm. because she was raised in it, as, as was Joaquin Phoenix, I believe. Yeah, the way they recruited was different, but also kind of equally deceptive and sinister. They they used to use I don't know if they still do, but they used to use a technique that Berg described as flirty fishing. So the idea was mm. that they get attractive female members basically to dress provocatively and go out to bars, clubs, etc., basically to pick men up, uh, seduce them, and the idea was that you know, having having sex with these men was just part of the recruitment technique. So, mm. and in a lot of cases they were coerced into it. Berg was sort of saying, right, you know, in order to bring people into the fold, in order to save them, you have to do this. It is your duty to go out and sleep with these men, whether you want to or not, which is pretty fucking repulsive. Then they'd they'd draw these additional people in, you know, use that as a way of of growing and growing their coffers and you know growing the pool of people that. They a burg of fuck mm. and yeah i mean that that is just horrifying so one of the key differences i see with a lot of these cults that we're talking about i mean that one for example the facade of what the members are told they're doing you know about like you know let's say it's like a religious group right and they're told that it's something to do with you know it's often is like a christian thing or it's often sort of like takes some of the guys of a mainstream religion doesn't it but actually the guy at the top it seems to me is quite well aware it's not about that you know it's it's about yeah. the the guy at the top getting and it usually is a guy right um getting you know um men or women to have sex with or you know, getting lots of cars or private jets or you know wealth either wealth or sex or power um and or, or, or just think, adulation yeah right yeah i don't think they necessarily do they necessarily buy into it being religious i mean maybe if they're completely deluded yeah they do um but i think on the whole it's no more than you know like the it's just another way of getting people in I'm, some of the things that you're saying about the way they recruit people i'm thinking of the street gangs that you know, look out for for young kids who have been excluded from school and draw them in to like run drugs and stuff like that, and you know, yeah. terrorize their lives and make them join gangs. You can see why they do because they got no money and no immediate prospects, and you know, they're offered some prestige and money and so on. And you know, it's uh, pretty clear why they would be attracted to that. As we touched upon there briefly with the children of God, there's a, a whole different stratum of uh, members and cults as well, which is probably scarier in a lot of respects for the individual, which is the people who were born into or you know, brought into the cult as children by their parents and have grown up in all that. They're not necessarily recruits, but this has been their life from maybe as long as they can remember. Hmm. that's got to be the hardest thing to break away from. Hmm. In that that interview you saw with Rose McGowan, did she go into that at all, how uh, how she ended up breaking away from the children of God? Yeah, I mean, one um, example of the kind of lifestyle she was living, she recounted, um, let me just find it. 
So she recounted at one point she was having to snap her fingers for eight hours a day so that God would teach her to drive when she was 16. What the fuck? I know, right? It's just fucking nuts. And she knows it's nuts now. Um, But this is the kind of thing, you know, and her dad was, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I I can't really speak for her, Scott. Yeah, I I mean, she, she, she said there were some positive things in it. Oh, yeah. um, but then you know there was like you know they they sort of adopted kind of Montessori teaching kind of methods and she was like okay. reading, reading at two and a half but you know on the flip side they were advocating like child adult sex so, yeah at some point you know she got out of it right I think she went through a rebellious late teenage stage and sort of left which I guess many of us do go through the rebellious teenage stage but Usually it's to go off and do something, you know, uh, quite different. But uh, yeah, I think is, as I, if if I recall that that's that was her story. That uh... Matt, with the stuff you were reading up on with the People's Temple and with Heaven's Gate, were there any particular things that stood out about the way they recruited people? Any unusual techniques or any deceptions or anything they did? The one that had the more clear-cut recruitment was probably Heaven's Gate, because they very much went out on the road. They did talks at various locations and said, look, if you're interested, meet with us afterwards. And then they would give them almost kind of a a weird rite of passage that it would be, here's $50, we want you to get to this location, and we'll meet you there. And it was almost that they were encouraging this trip of uh, self-enlightenment and discovery along the way for them to mull over what had been told uh, to them, but also that it would be through that journey that they would cut all ties to their previous lives. There was the group that just disappeared from Oregon and it became a bit of a media sensation around there. That that was one such group that attended one meeting and then en masse decided our previous lives are done. We, we believe that we can find something with this group and just set off um, on their own personal journeys. But also, what you mentioned there about the $50 sounds really interesting. As a psychological technique, this is something that I've I've seen mentioned in conjunction with um, dubious sales techniques, which is the idea that you sort of give someone something, you know, in that case, the $50, as a way of creating a sense of obligation that, you know, whether or not the person consciously thinks of it that way. And, I mean, $50, you know, back in the 90s was obviously worth a bit more, but it's still not a, a fortune. But still, you know, it's a sizable enough sort of chunk of money that if someone handed it to you, you'd feel like you owed them something. And that something, mm. you know, would translate to you being more open to whatever it was that they were telling you later on. I guess we don't hear about the people who just disappeared with $50. But yeah. on yeah. a risk basis, they probably accept that. Yeah. There's also, yeah, it was quite a lot of money to hand out over because they, they were on the road a lot. Mm. Whereas I don't think Jones applied any of that kind of technique to the People's Temple. Um, he was very much a, a showman that his his sermons became popular by word of mouth. People would go to them, especially with his message of inclusivity that he accepted both uh, black and white members of the community, which was quite a radical thing at the time of the civil rights movement building up. But after they relocated to Northern California, that they went out on the road. They had these long processions of coaches, which would travel across the country doing these uh, mobile sermons. 
of which they will try to recruit people from all over to then get back on the coach and come back with them to California. You also mentioned that Jones did faith healing. Did he use that as a recruitment technique? Was it, you know, as, as part of his roadshow, did he heal people with as an inducement to to come and join the People's Temple? I'm sure if it was something he did on the roadshows, the only time I saw it come up in my research, it was still very much of his regular church sermon. Whether that was in Northern California or it was before he relocated from Indianapolis, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. But it was something that, crept in i believe the kind of again the cynical part of me believes that it was well i'm running low on things that would help draw the con- uh, more people to the congregation so i've got to add something to the act mm. there were plenty of examples like the uh the woman getting out of the wheelchair and then running around the auditorium where it was uh, proven later that it was actually one of his pas that was helping um perform the stunt uh, that it was very much showmanship and that it was purely designed to get more PR and more uh, more attention and people to then join once they heard about it. Yeah, I mean, I always think of like stage magicians with these kind of things as well. You know, I've seen mm. people do stage magic tricks that when you, you know, when they've got like a magic wand and a top hat, you know that it's stage magic. But if they pretend that it's, um, you know, some miraculous event, you know, bought through the spirits or, you know, some religious manifestation, then I can see people buying that because it's like just mind-boggling what stage magicians can do. This is something that Darren Brown's made use of a few times. He did, what was it, that uh, TV show a while back, uh, was it Messiah, where basically he was performing miracles, effectively using stage magic and trickery as a way of trying to show how exactly this, how people might recruit you into extreme religious movements mm. or cults or whatever through this kind of trickery. Yeah, I think, like I said, I can't think of Jones ever handing anything out to people. It was very much he was reliant on his force of personality and his showmanship to... Uh, to gather people towards him that uh, were interested in what he was saying and doing. I think the only things he ever gave to people were uh, to help him through his means of control over them. But it seems to me that all these groups, whether it's like Jim Jones and or, or uh, Applewhite with Heaven's Gate or whoever it is, the hit rate is, is and can be very low. You know, they're talking about groups with tens or maybe, you know, a few hundred yeah. members and, you know, over quite a few years. Um, so people will come and people will go, but you know you don't have to get that many coming in through the door. Particularly if they give you their life savings and tithe most of the money that they earn to the church, then you mm. know a fairly small pool of recruits can make the cult a, a fairly viable financial concern. So I guess you know the the point. Sorry, I think I got distracted. But the point I was trying to make earlier was that. Most of these real world ones are a con and is about the person at the top exploiting the people underneath them. Whereas in a Cthulhu one, uh, yeah, it could be that. But on the whole, you know, in scenarios, it's a person at the top who is maybe more, you know, knows the real magic or they're more in touch with, you know, the mm. Nalathotep or, or they're a manifestation of Nalathotep or whatever. But let's just say they're a regular person. You know, they're more in touch with Cthulhu or whatever it is. And the people below them, or at least the people directly below them, probably know about that. Maybe the people, you know, a few rungs down the ladder just think it's a, you know, benevolent charitable society, you know, Order of the Silver Twilight or whatever it is. But there's more of a, 
I think, a, an authenticity to it almost, that the person at the top, their goal isn't just a, a selfish gratification one, typically. Well, I, I'd say that there's a real mix of those. There certainly are you know, any a number of cults that are formed around people who do genuinely believe what it is that they're, they're preaching, whether that is out of a, a general kind of religious faith or, or out of delusion. From the little bits I've read about Heaven's Gate, for example, I don't think Heaven's Gate was, you know, anything like that. I think that, you know, Applewhite genuinely believed what it was he was preaching. He was just psychotic. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Yeah, yeah, from what I've read too. There, there's, I think, you know, something interesting in the psychology of cults there, that this whole idea of, of shared or group psychosis, you see this, I, I think, you know, turn up quite a lot in, in crime stories, well, both real and fictional, you know, the whole idea of a folie à deux, um, the way you get these sort of group or shared delusions. They can operate on a much larger basis. And I think, you know, there are still, you know, plenty of cults out there which do operate like that, where, you know, you have all these people who whose delusions are just feeding into each other and becoming, you know, really quite psychotic. Hmm. There's one of the things that came up when I was looking at uh, Jim Jones, and particularly his methods of control, which it essentially boiled down to mind control. Hmm. But there was one line in the in the write up that I that I read, which said that he realised very early on that he needed to break his congregation in order to control them. Now, some of the methods, maybe we've already discussed things like confusion, starvation, disorientation, that it took away their individual thoughts that mm. he effectively would do all the um, would do all the thinking for them um give them little food make them listless make them obedient uh, sleep deprivation made them more tired and more pliable and so on and so forth but i think in a there's a much easier way in a in a cthulhu setting to do that to break your um the people that you've got through the door um you've used your hook to uh, to kind of reel them in and then it's well welcome to the cult guys here's your god summon and probably <laughs> shatter what's left uh, what's left of their sanity. Yeah, and they they become a believer, and they are irre- irredeemably broken at that point. And that mm. uh, that does what others have done through more human means in a much quicker and more fundamental way. It doesn't even have to be here's your god, but it could be here's a servitor of your god. You know, summon a dark young or whatever, mm-hmm. or even just expose them to some mythos magic because some of that can be pretty sanity blasting. Oh yeah, just something that gives you a massive sand hit in one go mechanically would do pretty much the same job, and then you have a much more pliable, a much more malleable servant and cult member that you can then use to do your bidding. Well, in terms of like members and actually doing that in the Cthulhu cult, um, in a call of Cthulhu cult, I mean, I would think that once you've taken somebody in, you're not going to want to have them in your cult for a couple of weeks and then you know show them you know, a bayaki or something, because that could go, you know, multiple ways. Um, it could, like, drive them uh, away. It could, like, make them totally panic and flee and drive them away, or it could make them, you know, buy into it. Um, but I would think that's something that would have to be kind of, you know, maybe maybe stepped up. And, yeah. and also that's something that could, you know, if if newer members found out about that and were shocked by it, could it, it could well make them leave and contact the investigators, I would have thought. 
if you were going to have a malevolent cult like that in Call of Cthulhu and you know you show them the shoggers in the pit or whatever it is uh, mm. in the hope of breaking them, those who aren't broken, if the cult leaders can identify that, I would have thought they're going to become the next round of shoggers snacks because yeah. you know, you wouldn't want those people getting away for exactly that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason why you don't hear about the ones that got away. They did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the conditioning techniques that you know real world cults use, I mean, yeah, we've we've covered a, a fair few of those, but yeah, it's probably worth just reiterating those you know, at this stage very quickly. So this whole idea of isolation is key. And usually that's physical isolation going off to some kind of retreat or cult compound or whatever. But you know, certainly social isolation. The important thing is to cut new recruits off from any existing forms of support they might have. Family, friends, just contact with the outside world. You don't even necessarily want them being exposed to the news or anything like that. What you want is while they're within your your control to basically you know feed in any idea that they might be exposed to to use this as an opportunity to fill their heads with as much dogma and jargon and paranoia this this whole idea that you know now that they're within the cult they're safe and the rest of the world is toxic and evil and they need to hunker down here yeah, I think hence we see quite a few of these cults use the term the family. You know, yeah. they brand themselves the family or the something family because, you know, you don't need your family anymore. We've You've got us now. And in fact, it'd be better if you didn't talk to your family at all because that's just going to, they're just going to try and, you know, pull you away or corrupt you or whatever. And uh, yeah, Scott's your daddy now. You don't need anyone else. <laughs> uh from there, you you then go to sort of breaking down the sense of self in the way that you talked about with uh, the People's Temple there, Matt. And th this isn't just something cults do. Um, I, I remember a friend of mine years ago talking about he, he was addicted to amphetamines for some time. And he went along to a fairly extreme organization. I can't remember the name of it that basically provided treatment for addicts. And this wasn't like a nice cuddly 12-step program. This was something that was aimed at troubled teens that used extreme techniques. And the way he described it was that you know, during the time he was there, they basically broke down his personality completely and then rebuilt it as someone who didn't use drugs. You know, that strikes me as being you know, almost exactly what you were talking about there, Matt, with the People's Temple. This whole idea of break the person down, rebuild them as what you want. I had drugs in particular were definitely something that uh, Jones employed with that as well. So not to mention a whole load he took himself. It's one of the uh, one of the reasons I heard that he uh, used to keep um, his trademark sunglasses on was so that uh, people wouldn't see his uh, bloodshot eyes and his dilated pupils. Hmm. But you know, it's the whole idea then that this is an assault on the sense of self, that you're basically trying to strip people of their individual identities. I mean, you you control what they wear. So, you know, like in the case of Heaven's Gate, you issue them with uniforms right down to the sneakers they wear. In some cases, you give them new names. You break up any existing relationships they might have. So you know, if, if a group of friends join together, you try to split them up. You control who they have sex with. 
These two people are obviously destined to get married, so you're now a partnership, regardless of whether they had any interest in each other. The use of confessional techniques and, you know, basically spilling all your inner thoughts out to cult leaders or other members of the group. I'd Nixium used this an awful lot and basically, you know, used it as a way of, of controlling and coercing their members. They, they basically kept blackmail material. They get incriminating photographs, particularly nude photographs of the women, and then threatened with blackmail if they, they acted against the interests of the cult. Hmm. And it's also a way of forming strong emotional bonds, isn't it? Because when you confide your secrets to somebody, you are forming a bond with them. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, that's what genuine friendships are partly based on, you know, I think is yeah. know, the sharing of self and uh, breaking down barriers and so on. And that's, that can be a good thing or it can be exploited. I think a lot of the things that cults do in different circumstances can be positive things. It's just the combination of the the intention behind them is mm. what makes them dangerous. Definitely. Alongside the methods that we've we've already touched on, the People's Temple and particularly Jones used a number of other methods of control. Some of which we've talked about. Sex was a big one. Uh, it seems like most cult leaders tend to like getting their end away. For instance, when uh, Jonestown was set up, he had um, this all-female leadership corps that he used to run all the day-to-day operations, which included the relationship committee that planned biracial coupling in the congregation. Um, he accused everyone of being gay, but he was the only true heterosexual amongst uh, amongst them all, or even oh, wow. indeed the only one in the world. Yeah, and he encouraged infidelity to one's partners by making love to them, so that he demanded fidelity to him alone. Um, so it was kind of emotional control through sex, but. One of the probably the more horrific things for me was the very blatant physical abuse, torture and violence that he encouraged amongst the congregation as well. Um, sometimes it was used as a tool for control, but other times it was just employed merely as punishment. Uh, mostly it existed because Jones had become increasingly paranoid. He was cynical, jaded, um, ravaged by the destructive force of nefarious power and drugs that um, he was paranoid about the oncoming apocalypse that there was going to be a thermonuclear war um he was paranoid that people were uh, planning against him that they were going to try and leave the congregation and he would uh, refuse them to um, the, the abuse that he used was always humiliating um, involved beatings naked floggings sexual assaults one example was one of the congregation had to shit him in a, in a can in front of the rest of the congregation because they'd spoken out of turn um, he would terrorise and beat the children because there was quite a large uh, number of kids of the congregation that were involved by proxy and that they used to have uh, little schools for. Even in Jonestown, they had a kind of nursery and school that was there. So was Jim Jones doing the beatings or was he almost worse, like getting other people to do the beatings on his behalf? I think it was a combination of both because uh, there right. were some reports that it was he would actively sit and watch while others did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of them that I remember is a pun- uh, one of the punishments that was talked about quite quite a lot in several of the accounts that I'd read was that there was a, I think it was a young boy um, who had been rude to an older woman in the congregation. And the public apology that he had to make, I think it was some sexist remark he made thinking about it, uh, the apology in inverted commas was that he had to fight in a boxing match the girl, the other lady, rather this older lady, that he had made these comments against, and much to the uh, the love of the rest of the congregation, basically the woman beat the shit out of the boy, oh, and wow. so he very much lost he lost the boxing match. 
Mm. But I think that because they felt such a kind of positive reaction to it, that was seen as a good thing in the eyes of the rest of the, the rest of the congregation. So mm. kind of reinforced, oh, these, these methods are good because we've got this, this positive outcome from it. Because that seems quite a powerful tool is getting some members to create to to conduct violence uh whether it be on other members or you know just third parties well yeah i mean he, what, he didn't actively go out and pull a trigger and killed the congressional team that went down to jonestown when everything fell apart yeah that was very much his underlings went down there in a truck and then mm. took pot shots at everyone it would escalate a bit more that so he would take away wives uh out of couples to have sex with them he would electroshock the elderly he would uh, make people drink urine and eat their own vomit he was a general all-round nasty figure by the end of this Mm. yeah that sounds like pure sadism uh in fact it sounds almost literally like something out of the marquis de sade i think there are also less extreme methods that uh perhaps more successful in keeping people under control. And a big one, which I I think we sort of hinted at, but perhaps not made explicit, is the fact that, you know, a lot of these cults are effectively communes. And by the time you've you've joined up with them to that extent, you know, perhaps, you know, given over your life savings to them if you had any, you're basically entirely dependent on them uh, financially, for shelter, for food, for all your social contacts. If you've been isolated from your family and friends, you know, this is your entire world. So the idea of just trying to break away from all that must be like just the idea of one day walking out of your house, leaving your family behind and never going back, which you know just seems insane. Oh, yeah. there's definitely that. I mean, he started off with taking a tithe towards the church and almost setting up this kind of competition atmosphere of how many hours in a day can you work for the benefit of the people's temple hmm. um, until it finally became, no, actually, you're not giving just a tithe. You're giving all your income to the church because it's going to be for the betterment of all of us. Yeah. And people accepted it. Yeah, the Buddha field had a similar thing where they'd do uh, what they called service. So it's basically they had, as members, they had jobs, you know, going out and doing jobs. But when they came home, they'd do service. So they'd do gardening, they'd do DIY, then whatever it was. You know, it was another form of devotion, I guess. And also that that makes people tired because they're overworked mm. and that makes them more vulnerable to indoctrination. So it's, it's win-win from the cult's point of view. Yeah. Precisely. And I think in a Call of Cthulhu respect, I mean, what you were talking about there, Matt, with those pretty abhorrent things that were going on, I can kind of see you wanting to make things unpleasant. I don't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want some of those things in the game. I think mm. the feel of unpleasant things going on is, is fine. But I think what's more interesting from a game point of view is perhaps the paranoia that you sort of mentioned about Jim Jones having. So this person at the top of the cult, they're not that kind of like James Bond villain who's sort yeah. of thinking through all the things and like is a, a mastermind. They're a very paranoid, delusional character who is suffering their own problems and demons, and they are making a lot of mistakes. And they're, you know, they're looking out for the investigators turning up, but they're also looking out at their own members and punishing them for imaginary crimes and. Mm-hmm. And also potentially trying to keep control of um, a fairly dysfunctional bunch of people. And if you're already mm-hmm. paranoid 
there are plenty of stories in cults of leaders suddenly changing direction, coming up with new dogma, new beliefs, whatever, or, you know, in the case of, say, something like Heaven's Gate, sort of plunging straight forward into the suicide cult aspect. And again, with People's Temple suddenly deciding that, you know, everyone had to die. That's, you know, a hallmark of the fact that these aren't, you know, ordered, carefully controlled organizations for all the control that they place on on individuals that they're simultaneously absolutely chaotic oh yeah it was complete and utter chaos by the end i mean i guess we're talking about call of cthulhu cults they could be like that or they could be really ordered and you know tactically sorted out so you could go either extreme but i think as a keeper often i sort of feel like when i'm reading the scenario you know why would that person do that that doesn't make any sense but it's like, well, no, that is why they would do that because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that and that can be fine, um, but I think sometimes readers, you know, they want like a rational cult leader, and also, I mean, incompetence and people just flailing around is really quite dangerous and also compelling from a story point of view. I don't know if either of you have ever read much by Elmore Leonard, the American crime writer who died a few years back. A lot of his stuff's been filmed over the years. But one of the hallmarks of his work, which I can see working very well in this kind of Call of Cthulhu setting, is that he tends to have very competent protagonists who are then enmeshed in conflicts with quite, quite often very incompetent or you know generally quite stupid criminals but their their stupidity makes them exceptionally dangerous because they're unpredictable when they're in stress situations they do dumb things and dumb things get people hurt it turns out to be quite you know more frightening sometimes than dealing with masterminds yeah i mean like those kind of people that are kind of a bit you know like you just described scott like flailing around doing crazy things when they're under pressure, just making rash decisions. I'm just glad those kind of people aren't in charge of, like, countries, you know, governments and so on. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, especially during a time of pandemic. Yeah. Just imagine if our country was run by people like that, Scott. Oh, I'm crying now. Yeah, we'd be fucked. (laughs) And all that bombshell. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting a little too close to reality for my liking. Yeah. Well, we've cheered everybody up. Yeah, I, I'm going to go yeah. off and join a cult now. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it'll be safer that way. <laughs> it'll be fine. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you very much for listening to us in the first place. And thank you very much for a backer. We, we thank you every time and we mean it and we'd like to thank you again. And we have a whole bunch of new backers to thank. And some go by one name and some go by many names. But uh, let's start off with a big thanks to Jacob. And another thanks also go out to Robodozer, which I think is an amazing name, right? <laughs> And many thanks to Miranda Adams. And thank you to Jessica Sparks. And thanks to Nathan M. Piddy. And thank you very much to David Schneider. And thank you to the Subterranean Ocean Survey. I'm not sure if that's just one person down there delving the depths of the ocean in the, you know, I don't know, hopefully the some trench in the Pacific, or maybe hopefully not. Yeah, I was about to say nothing, nothing good will come from that. There's a great way to lose sand right there. (laughs) 
And a very special thanks go out to Holden Omens. And thank you very much to Richard Marpole. And thank you to JS. And thanks to Tim Evans. And thank you very much to Mellow Sign. It's kind of yellow, but a little mellower. Yes. Well, they, they've turned up <laughs> on our Discord server recently, so I'm, uh, it's a familiar name, but it's still amusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Will Dean. And last of all, thanks to Samantha Hickey. Okay, well, I think we may have one more episode about cults. So join us next time when we uh, look into them once more. And until then, it's a good night from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous tomes? <laughs>